0: Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to a Heart to Heart with Adoptions from the Heart podcast. My name is Amanda Aliberti, social worker at Adoptions from the Heart. We welcome you to our agency podcast, a platform to hear voices from all members of the Adoption Triad. We will be connecting with other organizations and professionals to collaborate about the services we offer our clients. We look forward to our audience learning more about adoption and the future growth of our community. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adoptions from the Heart's Heart to Heart podcast. We have two special guests with us today. We're really excited to spend some time to talk about PACAs, which are also commonly known as post-adoption contact agreements. So here with us today, we have Ashley Codet. She is a county administrator for Orphans Court. She also has experience in private open adoption as a adoption social worker. So welcome, Ashley. Hello. We also have attorney Debbie Spivak. Debbie Spivak is a private attorney whose practice is limited to adoptions, and she is licensed in the state of Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Hi, Debbie. Welcome. Hi, thank you. So ladies, so I'm so happy to have you here today. A lot of questions that we often get from birth parents and adoptive parents when they're in the process of adopting is what contact is going to look like moving forward. I think it's important for me to say that my experience is also in private infant adoption. Adoptions from the Heart is a private infant adoption agency. And so we utilize in the states that allow these post adoption contact agreements, which are enforceable future contact agreements. Um, However, in the state of Pennsylvania, where I'm located and where one of the states at the agency is located, when Act 101 was released, it was not just for infant adoption, it was also for foster care. So Debbie, I was hoping you could start off by giving us a little background on what Act 101 is and what it means uh, in the state of Pennsylvania.
0: So, um, Pennsylvania in 2010 passed a law enabling parties to an adoption to enter into a voluntary agreement to set forth the terms for future relationship through pictures, letters, visits, and other forms of communication if they want, and for that agreement to be enforced by the court that finalizes the adoption. If both parties or the parties seek to have that type of mechanism available if things were to, say, fall apart at some point. PACAs had been the tradition in a lot of adoptions for many years, but the only difference is they weren't court enforceable. And this, I believe, was designed to enable parents, particularly if they had kids in foster care, to move forward with consenting to adoption, knowing that they would be able to have future contact with their children and to really to get kids out of foster care. I also believe that it was designed for other relatives to have that type of relationship as well. Uh, sometimes grandparents have an ongoing relationship or siblings and through adoption, those are legally terminated, but this provides a mechanism through which the parties continue to have connection to one another. Yeah.
1: and. Um... From my experience, uh, drafting PACAs and signing PACAs, there's also a part um, where once a child is over the age of 14, at least in the state of Pennsylvania, they also are able to participate in what the terms of the PACA are. That is my understanding.
0: I believe the age is 12. Ashley, can you, oh, I yeah. gotta, if I'm wrong, it's 12. Okay. Yeah.
1: Wow, so it's 12. Okay. Well, that's even, yeah, that's great. So, so not only is it for birth parents and adoptive parents, um, but as for the child as well, when they're 12, they have a say in what this contact looks like and what is all agreed upon. So as colleagues, Ashley and I were catching up before we uh, started the podcast and We were talking about how this started with foster care and how we use it regularly in private infant adoption because it is so important to our birth moms. And Ashley, you were sharing with me that you've seen in your experience, at least this being used less in foster care.
2: Yeah, so I I took a few minutes just to look at some statistics, and this is specific to the county where I work, and so it may be different uh, across the state and across the country, but what I found in our specific county is that compared to the number of adoptions, the number of PACAs that are signed and entered into the court record are relatively low, about 10% of adoptions that are finalized. Include APACA in our county over the course of the last couple of years. And the vast majority of those were adoptions through a private agency rather than foster care. So I just think that's interesting looking at sort of where this law came from compared to what the effects have been. And in a lot of ways, it's really great because it does allow for birth parents who are making a choice for adoption to be able to have that continued contact and have it legally enforceable in case something were to happen. But it is unfortunate that it's not also more widely used in foster care scenarios. And I do think that part of that is those relationships between birth parents and prospective adoptive parents who start as foster parents can be a lot more strained because they go through that whole foster care experience before they get Mm -hmm. to an adoption.
1: Yeah. And originally when you had first said it to me, I was thinking, oh, well, perhaps the decline was because you know placements have declined, but it sounds like like, you know, it's still relatively small.
2: Yeah, that's so I mean, I think that the, the total number of PACAs has declined from 2019, and then into 2020 and 2021. The number of adoptions also slightly declined, likely because of the pandemic and just folks being able to get through the whole process and finalize their adoptions. But I think that Pretty consistently. It's not like we've ever seen like 40% of adoptions finalizing have a PACA. It's pretty close to that 10 or 15%, at least in our county.
1: And so I was doing a little bit of research before we started today, too, because I wanted to see, you know, we're licensed in six states, we're licensed in Connecticut, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Virginia. And in those states, we have enforceable PACAs in New York and Pennsylvania and Virginia. There was a time when there was a possibility of a packet in Delaware, but I don't know if Debbie can update us on what that is, but looking at the Child Welfare Information Gateway website, and they're telling me that at this point in time, there's 29 states in the District of Columbia who currently have statutes to allow written and enforceable agreements. So, I mean, I think that it's moving in a positive direction, but uh, it's still not an option in many of the states in the United States.
0: I think the um, audience might be interested to know that the way that you enforce a PACA is not that you can overturn the adoption if you want to enforce it or that you can get some type of monetary damages. The only thing you can really do is seek specific performance of what was agreed to, the actual terms of the visits and, and letters and pictures, et cetera. So for professionals that hear that, I think it's just important to know that that the relief you can get is limited if the other party doesn't
1: follow through. Yeah. And I did want to take some time later on today to talk about that and talk about some cases in Pennsylvania where one side of the party did not follow through with the agreement and kind of what those outcomes were and what the process is. But I also think that it's important to kind of start from the beginning and talk about how do birth parents receive a PACA? Like what are the steps that a that a birth family would need to go through to even begin this process?
2: So in any adoption in Pennsylvania, at least now with this with the Act 101 law that allows for post-adoption contact agreements to be legally enforceable, every birth parent is legally required to receive notice that this law exists and that they have the opportunity. So as a private adoption social worker, we were tasked with providing that notice as early in the process as possible to a prospective birth parent, and then continuing that conversation throughout their adoption journey. And then also especially talking about it, like at the time that they're signing consents, at the time that they're really trying to make sure this is the right decision for them and how this is gonna feel moving forward.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also important to mention that they're still eligible to sign the packet even after placement has been made, but only up until a certain point. And Debbie, I, I, can you clarify, is that up until the first hearing or the finalization?
0: Well, it has to be approved at or before. I think it's at finalization, actually. Okay. And But here's a little wrinkle that I'm seeing for the first time, which is when should they sign in if they're signing consents to adoption? My personal belief is it only makes sense to at least be given the opportunity to sign it at the time you sign the consent.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You fully understand what you're committing to and to understand that they can use it as a basis to overturn the adoption just to seek enforcement later on. I've started to see some legal arguments that don't make a lot of sense to me challenging this timing, somehow suggesting that signing the PAC at the time they sign the consent somehow renders it invalid. I don't really understand the argument, but um, would it
2: be because they are they arguing perhaps that it's coercive, that it's Yes, that's a yeah.
0: better description. Exactly.
2: So I could I could see that argument because especially in a foster care context, that's been a really tricky Distinction, right? Because this whole law started because they wanted to give parents with children in foster care an opportunity to continue contact and to sort of make it feel easier, for lack of a better term, to allow their rights to be terminated knowing that they could still have contact. But how do you allow that while not saying we're basically coercing you, we're giving you a deal, right? And that's not what the context is, but it feels a little tricky. So, especially given the timing of you're agreeing to consent to this adoption to allow your child to be adopted, but here's what you get in return. I could see the argument there.
0: Well, I think that it's important. I think Pennsylvania does a really good job of putting out forms where it really spells out exactly what the relief is if you want to seek enforcement of it and directly says that you cannot use this to set aside the adoption. Mm -hmm. I think to me that at least takes out the coercive element. I think also the infant adoption arena, people come to it voluntarily and this is part of what they want it's it's what motivated them to move forward with this monumental decision to begin with so the idea that making them wait to sign that document would be coercive just seems very backwards to me
1: yeah
0: i understand now that you mention it how it would be different in the
1: foster care In the foster care. Yeah. they are definitely two different situations, you know, but I also, the reason why I brought that up though, is because unfortunately um, we've seen situations where many situations where birth parents do not take this opportunity. I mean, like Ashley said, 10% of her adoptions had enforceable PACA. And even though it's offered to every birth parent for some reason or another, they don't use this option. A lot of it is I trust, I don't need it. Or I think sometimes they feel like maybe it's too harsh to expect the adoptive parents to notarize a document. um, even though um, we don't see it that way, you know, but I I say this because in certain circumstances and if you are a birth parent listening and you've recently placed your child for adoption in a state, um, you do want to talk to your social worker about this because if the contact is not what you thought it would be or what is promised to you if the adoption has not yet finalized yet you may still have an opportunity to get some type of future contact agreement in writing and so I just think that professionals and parents and birth parents should know that is an option in in at least the state of Pennsylvania and I would assume in other states that have similar laws so um so let's say a birth parent comes to us they receive notice they decide that they do want the PACA I guess I I just want to spend some time. How is a PACA normally negotiated? Well,
0: I really would have to speak from the private adoption world rather than agency, because I'm not involved in that stage at the agent in an agency adoption. In a private adoption, there's usually attorneys for both sides. And depending on who you represent, that's something that more and more parties both want. But primarily I've seen birth parents be the driving force because Sometimes, especially after the baby's born, they start to have a bond with the baby and start to just fear breaking that bond entirely. And so this is a way of maintaining that kind of contact and knowing they can go back to the court for enforcement is very powerful. In cases where I don't have, well, the states where I don't have the ability to have court enforceable contact like New Jersey, we can only do like a good faith kind of an agreement, which is really just based on trust. And sometimes it doesn't carry the same, the same weight. I do believe that just putting down your intentions in writing does, it's a moral commitment that you're making and people do take it seriously in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would I would say I, and I you bring up a good point. I mean, because we're talking about birth parents receiving notice, but in state of Pennsylvania, adoptive parents also receive notice too. And they can also request a PACA. And so, but you're right, Debbie. Most of the time in our in my experience as well, birth parents are the driving force to beginning the process. But, but yeah, but we've seen a lot of adoptive parents be very pleased with the fact that there's going to be a PACA and wanting that, you know, to negotiate what that's going to look like, what the Relationship, but where the visit's going to happen, how long the visit's going to happen, so so they have an idea of what the birth mother would like to see from them, and also you know making sure that the expectations for both sides of the party are met. And so I I would say that um, at least in my experience, in cases where where there is a PACA, we don't really, and even in cases where there's a morally binding agreement, in most cases. Majority of the cases, we don't see any issues, you know, that, that, that generally the adoptive parents and birth parents abide by that in some cases supersede where they, you know, maybe they started off with a middle liaison, someone that they were exchanging letters and pictures through, and then they're now texting each other, emailing each other. And that's not necessarily in the agreement, but that's what they're doing. So, yeah, I do think that they, at least in my experience, they're beneficial to both parties.
0: I would agree. I think I've seen, and it's probably because you guys do such great training with adoptive parents. I've seen them really value these relationships and these visits. And if something has to get rescheduled, I've seen them be very disappointed because they have to explain it to the child who might be disappointed. So I think both sides seem to see it as a really good thing and have come to value it for different reasons adoptions from the heart
1: specifically is an open adoption agency while we do help birth parents who are interested in what we call closed adoption by definition it's not always closed because at minimally there's medical information exchange or we're at least holding letters and pictures or she meets the family prior to placement which by definition can fall under what an open adoption is so and sometimes um Birth parents who may not want contact right away still do a PACA because they know that they may change their mind in the future. And we've really seen adoptive parents embrace that and say, yes, let's do this because we, you know, we want that openness too. I want to shift gears though, um, because there are situations where PACAs are not followed. And so when an adoptive family does not follow what they agreed upon, what happens in those situations?
2: So I I can speak from my experience in both of my sort of areas of background, right? So as a social worker for a private adoption agency, I remember one case in particular with a, a mom who placed her daughter, had a PACA, had a bit of a rocky relationship with the adoptive parents. She grieved really hard with her decision to make a placement and she had some regret and she really struggled and being the young woman that she was her outlet was facebook and so she posted some things on facebook she posted about how sad she was she posted some of the photos that she had received from the adoptive parents And that was her way of sort of coping with her emotions. She didn't have the resources necessarily to have a therapist to talk these things through with. She didn't have the family relationships that she could count on. She didn't really want to talk to her social worker about it. So she used that as an outlet and the adoptive parents were not her Facebook friends but were sort of stalking her on Facebook to see what she was posting. Um, So they were, you know, she was maybe violating a part of this agreement by posting on Facebook, but they were also violating her trust, even if it wasn't specifically written in this agreement, right, Mm -hmm. they were were both in the wrong. And Mm -hmm. ultimately the adoptive parents said, well, because she's posting on Facebook and she's clearly having a hard time with this, we're just going to cut off all contact. And the birth mom really had a hard time with that. And she apologized. She wrote them letters. She removed everything from Facebook. She promised to never do it again. They wouldn't hear any of it. Ultimately, my response to her was, if they're not going to listen to you and you do have an agreement, your next option is to take this to court. Unfortunately, on the court side of things, she's a woman who doesn't have a lot of resources. And in order to take this to court, ideally she would have an attorney. The court in Pennsylvania does not appoint counsel for a birth parent who is trying to fight a PACA, right? Mm -hmm. Get what they were promised. I think that a judge would have to take a pretty liberal view of the way the law is written to be able to do that because it specifically allows for guardian ad litem to be appointed for a child in a and a dispute, but it says nothing about the parents. Mm -hmm. So in that case, she would have needed to hire an attorney or find an attorney who would do this pro bono. And at the time that I left the agency, she was not able to get the resources to do that. On the court side, I've seen one case where a birth parent actually was able to fight this and win, which is excellent. And she was able to do that Pro se, which means without counsel, she didn't have an attorney. Our judges in the court where I work are pretty open, so they won't necessarily require that in adoptions and guardianships and other matters. If someone writes a letter to the court, they will take that as a petition, so they won't require her to like legally write out a petition, which. would not even have any idea how to do i'm not a lawyer right Mm -hmm. so she wrote a letter to the judge and explained the situation and the relief that she was requesting which was to be able to resume visits with the adoptive parents and her child and the judge held a hearing heard her side of the story heard the adoptive parents side of the story made a ruling the adoptive parents really did not want to continue contact and actually fought it to the superior court who affirmed The lower court's decision and said this birth mother is allowed to have contact and Mm -hmm. you figure it out so that's a positive side of a case where it did work and it worked without legal representation but that's not going to happen in every case
1: Yeah. And I think that when we're talking about Pennsylvania, we're also talking about a commonwealth state and in each county that you go to, you can experience, you know, something different where maybe one county is okay with a birth parent representing themselves pro se and another may force that they, that they have legal representation. But I would say um, in in another case that I'm familiar with, you know, it's a very similar situation where the birth mother does not have the resources to afford an attorney. And I think that, you know, had she had these resources, maybe she wouldn't have been bitten even in a position where she was thinking about making an adoption plan. So I just think it's unfortunate that... There's that roadblock, you know, where you really need to save some money, uh, retain an attorney if you're not able to find someone to represent you pro bono. But Debbie, you know, I was hoping you could maybe fill us in on the legal side. Like if a birth parent was able to retain an attorney, what would the next steps be once she has counsel?
0: I would say that it would be filing a motion seeking enforcement of the PACA. One thing I have seen, though, in some of the case law, sometimes the birth parent doesn't even know which court to go to, because while termination might happen in one court, and that's the place they received the notification of a hearing, finalization could be somewhere else entirely. So that might be a roadblock for some birth parents. They should go to an attorney, I think that is familiar with this law, to a motion that follows the statute in terms of the type of relief being sought, be reasonable, be child-centered in describing why you believe that the agreement should be enforced, and come to the table with clean hands. If you've already been violating the agreement, for instance, let's say you skipped your last six visits and suddenly you want an agreement, that's going to be a tough place to start. I would do a motion with an attorney and try to keep those things in mind.
2: I think what you just said, Debbie, about being child-centered is such a huge part of this that we haven't really touched on yet. Ultimately, the whole point of PACA of a post-adoption contact agreement is that it is in the best interest of the child and that's what we would counsel adoptive parents on that's what we would counsel birth parents on when we're writing this agreement and everybody's coming to the table right that if this is a birth parent who's had a history of drug addiction that that may be a part of this agreement that they need to have some time clean and sober or you know, some remedies in place before they're able to continue with visits because it would not be beneficial to a child to come to a visit with a birth parent who is high. It's also then bringing in the adoptive parents to understand that it probably is in most cases in the best interest of this child to continue contact with the birth parent. And the child does get to have a say when they turn 12. And so up until that point, unless there's something really egregious going on, probably visits should continue. And if we can't get everybody to agree after they've signed this agreement, then maybe it is time to go either back to that liaison who helped to start the agreement or to the court.
0: I also think that there should be even though it's not part of the statute right now, perhaps some type of a mediation mechanism and that the adoptive parents might be the ones that should be covering the costs for these things because they, I've never seen them be on kind of the same playing field when it comes to being able to finance things like legal fees. Um, Yeah, I I also think like a lot of times adoptive parents, they really need to embrace open adoption, not just be willing to accept it. You guys work with birth parents, or at least Jenna does on an ongoing basis. And I think if, if adoptive parents aren't really willing and don't really see the value for their child in open adoption, maybe that's not a road they should pick because I always say I'm an adoptive mom and we answer to our kids eventually. And when my daughter turns 18, I don't want to have to tell her that I wasn't kind to her birth mother. I would be very ashamed to have to say that.
2: Or yeah. have it told on you by the birth mother, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, because eventually these things do come out. And I feel like, you know, especially with the way social media has grown and just searches in general, we did another podcast on searches, you know, birth certificates are becoming eligible. I mean, there's really a lot of avenues and ways that this information could be released later on. And so it is really important. Debbie, you were talking about suggesting that the state of Pennsylvania use mediation. And I definitely agree with you. And again, I'm looking at this at the child Welfare Gateway uh, website, and 10 states do use mediation, the District of Columbia as well. Some of those states are Florida, Georgia, Maryland, Massachusetts, uh, so it does New Hampshire. So it does see that some states are beginning to put in this step of mediation, and some of these states actually, it says, require the mediation before it can even it allowable to go to court. So yes, it does seem like that is the direction that some states are going in, which I would agree is a, is a a good step because it does create that other avenue of you know of trying to to resolve the issue or you know fix things prior to you know having to retain attorneys because not only does the birth mother have to have an attorney but then like you said ashley their child has an attorney and then the adoptive parents usually has an attorney and so it can
0: and it, it takes a while. Be,
1: yeah. And can adopted parents be responsible for the birth mother's legal fees if they were to lose the case.
0: Well, that's a good question and I don't know the answer. <laughs> I that's something I would probably have to look into, but I think that would be a fair solution given the difference in power dynamics in these relationships.
1: Yeah, so it's just, it's, you know, it's, I think it's ever changing and it's, and it's still growing. And like Ashley, you know, painted for us in the beginning. And as Debbie explained, the reason Act 101 came in was primarily for foster care and the private adoption agencies have really taken this and are really um, implementing that into their programs, especially, you know, notifying families and recruiting families who are open to open adoption and legally forcible agreements. So it is taking a shift for the good, um, you know, for the best interests of the child. I think we can all agree to that.
0: Um, Also, I don't see any reason why people can't use the mediation provision in the agreement even if it's not part of the Pennsylvania statute, people can agree to things that are reasonable. And I think that could be included in there. I also think that courts could perhaps use a mediation mm-hmm. tool within their um, their court system already for these kinds of matters and just think it could benefit the parties um, and the child in, in the end. So yeah, so a lot of, throughout this podcast today,
1: we've touched on a lot of things. And, and one of the main thing is just, Without saying we've been really um, answering questions that show that we really believe open adoption is the best type of adoption when we're talking about a pregnant woman who may not be in the position to parent her child, um, you know, an expecting father as well to come get their options if adoption is something they're looking to going towards knowing that there is a way that they can stay connected to their child, get updates on their child, you know, have a relationship with the adoptive family. And so we've, we've really seen this movement over the past couple of years, especially the 60s, when everything was very closed and secretive, it's just not that way anymore. And, um, you know, we had recently done another podcast where we talked all about open adoption and the benefits of open adoption. But um, Ashley, I was hoping that maybe you could also share with some of our listeners here today, some of those benefits.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the research shows that open adoption is best. Our collective experience here, I think shows that open adoption is best. And we really see that it's best for everyone involved in the adoption triad. So for adoptive parents, it gives them the answers that they need to answer their kids' questions, um, as well as the questions that they might have. Um, For birth parents, it gives them, I don't even wanna say closure because it's, it's not a door that's closing, right? It's ongoing, but it gives them comfort to know that their child is okay. And they can start to feel good or okay about the decision that they've made because they continue to see that their child is okay. And then most importantly for children, open adoption is beneficial because they can continue to have access to the people who have answers to the questions that will inevitably come up for them. It's also so important for identity formation. So when these kids reach that critical age of 12, where they're starting to get, you know, the court is gonna say, okay, you get to decide if you want to be involved in this agreement they're starting to sort of figure out who they are and how they integrate who they are from their birth family with who they are in their adoptive family, especially in a transracial adoption, having a relationship with someone from their same race who is also biologically related to them. There are so many reasons that open adoption is beneficial to everyone involved. Um, And these continuing contact agreements, especially when they're legally enforceable, can only help facilitate Uh, those ongoing relationships for the benefit of everyone.
1: Yeah, I would agree. And that podcast episode that I'm uh, referring to is open adoption. And my guest was Lori Holden, who wrote a book on open adoption that we also uh, provide to our adoptive parents here. And as Debbie touched on earlier, open adoption, doesn't necessarily always just have to be immediate family birth parents. Um, It can also be grandparents and aunts and uncles. And um, here at Adoptions from the Heart, we do see situations where maybe if the birth parents are not in a place to have openness at that time, or they're not ready. Sometimes extended family uh, will still have that connection and it's like Ashley said, it's very important for identity. And so, yeah, so, uh, Check out that podcast episode if you're listening and want to know more about open adoption. We talk a lot about the adoption triad and all the benefits to each party in that in that episode. So Ashley and Debbie, I'm so thankful for you both being here today. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about post-adoption contact agreements. Debbie, if you just want to share for our listeners where they could
0: get more information on your services, maybe your, your website. Sure. Um, my website is familybuildinglaw.net and that family building law is one long word with no dots
1: okay all right thank you so much debbie and ashley thanks again for being here thank you to our listeners this is another episode of adoptions from the hearts podcast heart to heart thank
0: you